And I, I wanted to embrace that because like the only word that I've really been able to associate with like my identity with is the fact that I've always felt foreign. Welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we have conversations with independent writers, bloggers, thinkers, and creatives of every background. Hi, Fiza. Thanks for coming on the Substack Podcast. Thanks for having me. So you write a publication called Foreign Bodies, which is about destigmatizing mental illness uh, centered around this immigrant refugee experience um, and also done with a heavy focus on storytelling. Yes. Um, and yeah, I'd love to just kind of start, we'll get into Foreign Bodies itself in a bit, but I'd love to start by just having you talk about like, how did you arrive here from a personal standpoint? Why is this topic important to you? Oh, man. Um, let's Dive see. Right I, <laughs> I, well, I... I myself am an immigrant, so I definitely, you know, there are discussions that I feel like I haven't really been able to have growing up. Maybe they've been stigmatized um, about mental illness, about identity. Um, so that definitely, that connection is definitely very like intimate um, for me. But I have been, I was a journalist, um, or I am a journalist, but I was with the newsroom for about four and a half years. And, um, you know, I always knew that like writing was kind of like in my blood, like my mom is like a storyteller, my daddy, my grandma is a big storyteller, will remember everything about everything. <laughs> um, and I definitely feel like, you know, once I got into the industry, I noticed like there was a huge focus on audience and, you know, kind of catering to an audience, your audience of subscribers, um, the people that have kind of been loyal to you. And what I quickly noticed was, you know, there wasn't so much of an emphasis of that immigrant audience, which makes up such a huge portion of the American population. And I like the more I researched, the more I realized that there really are very few publications, at least in mainstream media, few um, focuses on the immigrant experience at all. And I remember when I was um, in the newsroom, I left like, I want to say almost a year ago-ish. Um, I left because I, I, I was getting burnt out like completely. And one of the things that was burning me out was not being able to feel like, you know, the people from my background, the, my fellow immigrants, they weren't really being heard by mainstream media, which I was a part of, but I felt kind of helpless. And, you know, all that after 2016 kind of started weighing pretty heavily on me with you had the travel ban you had the women's march you had so many social issues kind of like um building up and having not really feeling like you have much of a voice when you're part of the free press in America kind of added to the burnout that I was already feeling as someone who lives with depression um and for me I felt like the only way to kind of combat all of it was to have some kind of departure and I don't know figure out how to do something on my own and that's kind of how I ended up saying goodbye to like that full-time journalism um, position and figuring out what to do next and how to incorporate 
the immigrant audiences like across the country and making like helping them have their voices heard. That's really that's really uh, beautiful. I love I love hearing that. Um, it's interesting, I guess, just that I'm also a child of um, two immigrants, and I feel like I often connect with people across a lot of different cultures from this sort of immigrant experience of either having come here when they were young or um, being born to parents who came here. And it is like actually like a very pervasive experience throughout the U.S. And I also think the immigrant experience in the U.S. is particularly unique in that I've I, I, I just feel like there's nowhere else that gives you a shot at being American <laughs> in the way that yeah. we extend to foreigners. Um, and so it's almost like part of me is like it's it's so cool that I feel totally 100% American and almost even more American because I have a, 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 immigrant parents it's like it is the quintessential American story and then in other ways it's almost like you get so assimilated that way that people sometimes like forget that like you're not just like them or yeah. you have this different background yeah and like what's interesting is like when like what you were saying earlier like it's so like the experience is kind of like so pervasive but even if you're like a first generation or like a new immigrant like there are some things that somehow we're all kind of dealing with or it's a foreshadowing of what we will deal with like the future generations so if you're like a new immigrant like what you're experiencing like full assimilation like you know almost nearly full assimilation is like what they can expect their like great-grandchildren or their grandchildren or their children to ex um, experience and so you know there hasn't been like a significant amount of like research on like how how we kind of like cope with like the differences across generations but as you said it's so pervasive like we know kind of like what to expect if you've been here for a long time which I find like really interesting that like you know we're still kind of like each new immigrant generation still struggles with the same issues despite um us kind of having a blueprint of how it's been and um, what you mentioned about how America is like so I, I, I guess I won't say like welcoming to immigrants but it is like very um, you know we do encourage like foreigners to assimilate in a way that makes everyone kind of comfortable <laughs> but then like nowadays you kind of question like who who is it really making comfortable <laughs> mm. um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's what I kind of thought of when you mentioned, like, you know, how, how, like, um, assimilated you feel right now, because at least for me growing up, like, I came, I was born in, in India, and I left for Saudi Arabia when I was, like, not even a year old. And um, before coming to America, I spent, like, I want to say, like, four or five years in Saudi Arabia. So that's where I learned English for the first time. And um, I attended an American school there. And when I came here, um, I just couldn't, like just growing up, I was really, I struggled to kind of find like my footing here. I I felt like I was so, like I, I was so disconnected from like Indian culture. I didn't even spend like, you know, a month there or like a few, more than a few months in India before I left. I definitely didn't feel connected to like, Saudi Arabian culture we left because we didn't have religious freedom there um and then when I was in America we traveled all over the place um to make sure 
to help my parents like kind of figure out their career and become physicians again like they were back in India and in Saudi Arabia and so I just feel like I never I think like from the outside looking in it definitely looks like I you know fully assimilated like my English is very I guess American or however you would want to call it um but I never I wouldn't ever say that I feel like you know I found a home here which sounds so strange I mean I've been here since I was like five but I just I don't know what it is I don't think I I was ever really comfortable saying that I fully assimilated um maybe because I haven't really adhered to like one culture over the other or haven't been able to figure that out I'm still figuring it out <laughs> do you feel like there's a different place that is your home or you're just sort of living between lots of different realities I definitely feel like I'm living between lots of different realities um Atlanta has been like our location, like our, you know, our home base for um, quite a long time. And so I've grown to really love Atlanta as a city and the people here. But, you know, I talk, <laughs> I talk about this with my therapist. Um, obviously, I talk about mental illness a lot. So probably will mention my therapist every now and then. <laughs> but I talk about, um, you know, something that has always kind of been like the root of my issue with belonging and depression is like not really feeling like um, the borders made much sense to me. Like I never felt like American or like, you know, like the soil of like wherever I was like standing didn't really connect to my identity. And so when I was going through depression, like that was like a huge thing. I just felt like I didn't belong anywhere. And um, one of the best things that I kind of got out of like my first stint in therapy um I think around 2017 um, was kind of falling in love with nature as cliche as it sounds, but I kind of learned to feel like more connected to like the earth as a whole and not so much like think about like the boundaries that we've created or like civilizations created from um, as long as we can remember. And that's, a, that's kind of like really helped me find some grounding. Hmm. I really love that. Because as we were talking, I was sort of thinking about where are the ways in which I feel like I belong. And I think I've sort of um, clung to this American idea or America as an ideal that anyone can belong to for similar reasons, maybe to the way that you're describing your relationship mm -hmm. to nature, where like, I guess for me, it feels like I can belong here because I really believe that anyone can belong here. Um I think I, 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 in a different sort of way, I mean, I was lucky to still be born and um, grow up in the same country, uh, but I had and continue to have these sort of like fractured relationships with different cultures in that um, both my parents are also bicultural, I guess. So like my dad um, is Persian, but he grew up in Germany basically his whole life. And my mom's Indonesian, mm -hmm. but she's ethnically Chinese Indonesian. And so there's, I've never really been able to belong to any one of their cultures and then they themselves are sort of like fractured versions of their own cultures right. and then they somehow we all ended up here um and so it is definitely this strange experience of um, especially when you're growing up in uh, I don't know what your neighborhood was like growing up but for me growing up in suburban Pennsylvania it was just like you know you're like the one that's not <laughs> the only one that's not oh yeah just like that everyone was... else with this suburban background <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty much my entire life. I think I went to like, I want to say like 11 or 12 different schools before I graduated high school. And 
I mean, we moved like based on rankings. So like once we were like in Georgia, I mean, and even in like when I first came to America, we were in Houston and then we were in New York and um, both times like the schools I went to were predominantly white. And then I came to Georgia and I mean, it was really, really predominantly white every school I went to. And I mean, my parents would literally pick us up and move districts if like the school rankings changed. And so it was, yeah, seriously. And, you know, it's only like recently that we've had discussions about like redlining and like what it all means and like how we were kind of complicit. But then like, you know, it's like you kind of chasing like whatever you think is best. Um, But yeah, I mean, I definitely know that feeling of um, being like forever being the odd one out. And it's funny, I went through like my entire, I think like 18 years, it wasn't until college. Um, I went to college in Atlanta here and it wasn't until college that I kind of told people to call me Fiza, my real name. I went by Fiza for like 18 (laughs) years and it's, it's weird. I used to like make my family call me Fiza and I I guess I thought that was cooler. <laughs> you know, it was I feel like I had a lot of like learning and like unlearning to do once I got older and like was able to recognize like all the different ways that I kind of assimilated it in a way that wasn't really healthy. <laughs> I'm really glad I asked how to pronounce your name last minute before yeah. we started. <laughs> I remember um <clears throat> there's another guest, Nikhil, who uh, tweeted something similar of this of like it's so strange that everyone always pronounces my name Nikhil but there's no reason like that everyone should assume it's like this long eye because it's actually Nikhil <laughs> um, <laughs> my dad has this growing up his name's Reza and for some reason R-E-Z-A but people always think it's Reza and like growing up was just like I don't know like why there's no reason why it should be Reza it's obviously Reza but, um, I, yeah I always thought it was Riza. like Riza. R-I because I, right, like I guess I, I have one friend named Riza, so like <laughs> <laughs> who might actually be named Reza if you ask <laughs> yeah I should probably ask him. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. I, I, I Could you actually talk a little bit about the meaning behind the name Foreign Bodies? Because I found the explanation that you you give on your site to just be so, so marvelous um, and, and kind of touches on this aspect of like leaning into our differences and just like learning to embrace and be proud of them. Yeah. So I definitely, you know, I can't, I can't tell you exactly like how, why I first came up, um, came up with Foreign Bodies, but um, the more I kind of sat with it, I've always, but the term alien has always been like kind of irritating. Like, you know, I mean, I, I didn't become a citizen until I was in my early 20s, um, even though we applied like for over a decade. It just took a really long time. And so I remember like the term alien always attached to my citizenship. And um, I mean, I went from a kind of alien to thinking about um, being called a foreigner and how offensive I always thought of it. But then when I spoke to, you know, my brother who was actually born in America um, in Houston, he, you know, never thought of it as offensive. And so it just made me like think about like the, the words that we use and like how I kind of wanted something that made you kind of question, like, is it really like, is it okay to like, just call yourself like a foreign body? (laughs) You know, why would you call yourself, like give yourself the word that people might use to kind of instigate and might use against you? 
And I, I wanted to embrace that because like the only word that I've really been able to associate with like my identity with is the fact that I've always felt foreign, like no matter where, like no matter if I was like, I'm sure I haven't even been back to India since I was born, <laughs> but I know that once I go back, I am not going to feel very at home because of all the stories that I've heard of like my friends who have been so like, you know, you know, so-and-so or so-called like Westernized or Americanized um, going back home and feeling a little bit out of place. I know I've always felt foreign in every classroom. I've felt foreign at even at mosque because people called me, you know, said I had like a valley girl voice or I was like the white brown girl or, you know, like whatever, like all these like different words. And so I definitely just connected with that word. And the more I talked to people about, you know, what they felt about it, I, I noticed that um, some people thought it was a little bit more like they they felt that it was a little bit more offensive um and I wanted to kind of make sure like in my um you know FAQs or in my bout section to kind of address like what exactly like a foreign body is I mean it, it really is just like I mean it's just something that is part of something that's been introduced from the outside so it wasn't there from the origin and you know, it's like something that's um, new to a place and it's not normal to the place where it's found. And so I, I realized that like that could be, that doesn't have to be an immigrant. That could be you moving to a new school district and being the only brown person there. It could be, you know, you being a black woman and a white dominant um, field it could be so many different things. And I think that's what's really cool about foreign bodies is like, we might center immigrant experiences the way like mainstream media centers non-immigrant experiences in their main story. But at the root of it is like something that anyone who can identify with being somewhere that they're not expected to be, or they haven't been born into can relate to. So if I'm talking about pill shaming in an Asian American community if you're from the South, you know, and you're new to like the field of psychology and your parents aren't really open to um, medication, that relates to you. It, it's really like not really about being an immigrant or not. And I think I wanted to emphasize that because there's a lot to offer um, in foreign bodies that's not specific to one type of experience. Hmm. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that, um, that clarification. It's it's true. I mean, I think that's is even, I guess, what I have found uniting about just the immigrant label is that it reaches a lot of people that just have an experience of being other or out of place or out of water and then sort of extending yeah. that, as you're saying, beyond even just being a, an immigrant in the um, national sense, but just sort of like you're feeling something that is not necessarily shared by your environment, which yeah. um, seems to really be at the heart of a lot of um, mental health issues and and, and and their origin, right? Because you're sort of like, why do I not fit into this thing? Exactly. Why do you think this topic uh, of, of mental health is so tough for people with a sort of I don't fit in here background in a way that does seem to transcend any specific culture or label or identity. Hmm. 
I don't know that there's like one one big answer there. I I think like you're you're a product of like you know your surroundings, your the education that you've been exposed to, the education you have access to, and the culture that you were born into. And I mean that has nothing to do with you being from one region of the country or the other. I mean it it's really just because like the stigma of mental health is so pervasive across different cultures and across different regions that I think like it's so it feels like such a universal fight you know it doesn't feel like specific to one demographic and I think it just kind of speaks to the way we've historically reported on mental health in media how we've historically addressed mental health in research in psychology and like the academics and so I don't know that there is one specific problem I I just I think it's something that I mean you see like the numbers like how many people are um if they were to be diagnosed with depression like it's a huge majority of the population so it's clearly something that if we were more attuned to, if we had more access and education and awareness about, we would probably be like, oh yeah, that is me. Like, of course that's me. But mm. usually we don't, you know, it, like life kind, kind of passes you by and you think you have other priorities. And so, I don't know. I just, it never felt specific to a culture at all. It feels like one, one place where I was just thinking it, it overlaps is, um, if you're sort of dealing with something personally you kind of hit this um you get this sort of like survivor drive that kicks in where you're just sort of like I want to just whatever I'm going to power through it it's fine I'm not even going to think about it which of course Lisa she's laying down the line um and I think maybe like similarly with a lot of people that are trying to like that are identifying with this sort of like foreign bodies label of like I'm somewhere that is where everyone is different if you're an immigrant refugee or um or any other sort of situation and and you're again just sort of like I'm just trying to like figure it out and I just I just want to make it work and so it's easier to kind of like push aside some of these um some of these things that you're dealing with and just sort of like ignore what's going on inside yeah, you. especially if you're like you know that one person who's not like the others you kind of it's almost like you have this like additional pressure to like outperform or, like overperform or outperform like your um you know your neighbors and your classmates and your coworkers because you are different and I'm not sure exactly like that I don't know why that's universal but you know you it's definitely specific to some groups like if you're an immigrant um or a child of you know immigrants who tremendously suffered to get here just to like make a house here um, and you're, you know, privileged to be in a position where you get to do some amazing, some amazing work. There's like a survivor's guilt that comes in and you, you feel like you're not allowed to really complain if like, you know, you don't have it as bad um, on paper as your parents did. And then it's something similar with like the black and the black experience too, I'm sure like that I've, um, like heard other like black women talk about is like they have that sense of survivor's guilt too. It's like they don't have it as worse as their descendants did. And so sometimes they feel like a guilt to like, you know, put all that pain aside and 
work through it. And I don't know. I mean, you see it kind of everywhere, but we still have, we still live in like a very, like a highly, you know, productive focused society, which seems to value that more, especially in like corporate environments. And so if you're someone who is not like most of your um, surroundings, it's just like, it's like an implicit pressure that you put on yourself and sometimes other people put on yourself, put on you too. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure like why that is. I just know that it exists. <laughs> yeah, the the comment of just sort of like highly productive um, work focused, output focused society also sort of strikes me as something that is particularly felt in the U.S. I think, um, and at the same time, it seems like we do place a comparatively higher value on therapy culture or like have like I, I I it seems like they're like therapists are just a more common thing to have in the U.S. versus elsewhere I'm actually not sure if that's true so uh correct me if I'm wrong but it, it, is that true <laughs> do you know um, um and, I actually and, have so, no like, idea <laughs> I don't like, know I um if that's true but you definitely feel like it is like you feel like people are always talking about it <laughs> Um, and yeah and like you know the self-care and wellness industry right definitely seems very American (laughs) yeah it's weird it feels like it almost goes hand in hand with the like the intensity of the circumstances that we're placing ourselves and then it's like now we have this like other component or this like byproduct of that sort of um, culture that is now sort of like all about the the mental health yeah and it's it's funny it's like I think Americans are okay I I don't want to like blanket all of America or anything but it feels like we're always looking for a band-aid and not really going back to you know why it is why things are the way they are and what we can do at the root to fix it I mean we kind of use self-care like face masks like not like the ones for like the pandemic but like you know like face masks for relaxation um and (laughs) the nice ones um and you know going to therapy which is definitely very inaccessible to most of the population and we use those as kind of those fixes and it's funny that you kind of mentioned that because I feel like that's also similar in some immigrant households too like my parents are both physicians and when I first talked to them about you know, at one point I was having um, like suicidal thoughts, like this was like 2016, 2017. And when I, you know, came to them um, with that, their immediate reaction was to find like a quick fix. So go to mosque and pray more, or, you know, like, um, let's put you on medication. Like there wasn't really like a and that was big. The medication thing is definitely not something every immigrant parent is open to. But I think because they're in medicine, maybe they're a little bit more attuned to it. But still, there was no, you know, thinking about, okay, like, why do you think? Like, why are you at this point? Like, what kind of led here? Like, you know, there are, there's obviously like brain chemistry that's involved in depression, but there's a lot of societal factors that also you know, make things worse for everyone. And so there was no real discussion about, you know, why am I feeling so burnt out? Why am I not able to get out of bed? Like, why am I not looking forward to a work day? 
even though, you know, I, I've said I love my job and, you know, all of that. And I think we're just really quick to find a solution that looks pretty and looks, um, that seems like socially acceptable without doing more of the dirty work and like trying to figure out, okay, but why aren't we talking about this like in the workplace as much? And that always bothered me. I really, as much as I love, you know, I I appreciate like the wonderful effects of my antidepressants. (laughs) I definitely feel like there's so much more that I felt needed to be coupled with that, that had less to do with, you know, buying new face masks or going to mosques or, you know, participating in something that I didn't feel was like creating some concrete change in like a system bigger than me. Like I, re- I remember um, shortly after I started beginning like cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy in addition to my antidepressants, which my parents were kind of weird about like they did, weren't totally embracing like the whole talk therapy thing. Um, but I just knew that it would probably work for me. I had read enough about why you should go to therapy <laughs> um, stories online and just felt like it was the right move for me. Um, and I remember like pretty soon after starting therapy, I started talking about mental health at work really openly. And I mean, I used to be like, okay, I'm going to go hang out with my dog for a while. <laughs> Like in the middle of the workday, like I just feel really exhausted and I just need a break. And I would say that out loud. And I know like a year before that, I would never even dare to say that. Like it would just be like, oh, wow, she's so lazy, you know, like makes me think just sort of about the value of, um, I mean, like you said, there there isn't a quick fix these things. And a lot of the things that can be helpful are interrelated with like your environment around you, like your workplace and your family and your friends and um, and so being able to like integrate this like inner self with your external environment and have that not be such a like not have this, this ex- enormous disconnect between the two, I think is yeah um, really valuable. And I feel like like it needed to be like seen in action. Like you don't just like see like if you see me taking I'm usually taking my antidepressants before I come to work. So you don't like see me actively like taking care of myself really. And I feel like it, that was really important like for me to like be pretty vocal about like every little thing that I'm doing to like take care of myself. And once I started doing that, I had coworkers come in and ask me about going to therapy for the first time. And it was like, it started a whole discussion in the newsroom. And I mean, that's like the kind of change that I feel like needs to be made. It's definitely dirty work and you're definitely airing your, you know, dirty laundry out. But I realized that like telling your story was like really the only way to like, change minds yeah it feels like even just knowing that sometimes I think this the things that we're all going through personally in our minds it, it it's all consuming because it's happening to you of course and sometimes uh, it can feel very isolating for that reason but even just like knowing that it happens to other people that you personally know or admire or look up to or work with every day um, can that like I mean learning those things through these narratives and storytelling can just be enormously beneficial oh yeah definitely a lot of people I've talked to have also seem to feel like this is centered around this um, parent-child experience, especially if your parents are growing up elsewhere and the kids are in the U.S. Um, and so we're raised with 
this one lens that is like more American and it could be hard to see eye to eye as to like what is even the issue or like how do these um yeah what what am I supposed to do about this and I think you're alluding to that a little bit with your parents um how do we start seeding these conversations earlier and do you find that foreign bodies appeals to readers that are in this younger demographic I think that's like one of the biggest issues that I've noticed at least like um my readers or my audience have been, you know, questioning, like, I get a lot of emails about how do I talk to my mom about this? Like, my mom's not really like listening to me. My dad doesn't really like to talk about his emotions. And I don't know how to get through to that. And, you know, I, I definitely feel like my experience is a little bit different. I, my brother and I have never really been afraid to kind of challenge my parents. And I think like that is a huge issue in a lot of immigrant communities. Like there's like, um, like a fear of like letting your parents down or like, you know, that seems to be very, at least like what I'm, what I've like received from like just the people that I interact with, like very pervasive in like Asian American communities, um, like Eastern and South Asian. and. I, I guess, like, I always say, like, you have to have, like, the really difficult conversations that, like, end in tears, that end in screaming, that might end up in you not talking to your dad for a few days or even, like, a week. I think that that definitely happened to me growing up. Um, I don't know that any of breaking through to people involves, like, not no screaming and no yelling like I've never had like a conversation with my parents growing up where you know you obviously have like that um that issue of like challenging someone who's older than you and in immigrant communities especially like the whole like uh, respecting your elders thing feels like very like you can't you know raise your voice with your elders you you can't um call them names like it's just not 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 saying that it's like common in like other cultures, but I, I just like I know that it's very taboo almost to like raise your voice or like talk back like talk down to anyone. And so like what what happens like this like generational like rift um between like, you know, your parents and the children where you feel like you can't really open the floor for a conversation or for debate because you're afraid of, you know, raising your voice, which will inevitably happen probably. <laughs> And so I, I don't know. I mean, my only advice is to like, just rip it off and <laughs> let the tears flow and let the yells happen because I, I don't know that like where my, how much my parents have changed their mindset about mental health or really about so many different things would have even happened if we hadn't challenged them a lot. I wonder if this also just points to the benefit of having communities like foreign bodies for people who, for whatever reason, like are unable to do that with their own families, but still being able yeah. to find like outlets for conversation um, elsewhere. There was a really good um, story that Meghna Rao, um, she told in issue 14 of Foreign Bodies, which her um, story was about, you know, I told my parents I was depressed and they didn't really believe me and how their disbelief or their kind of shrugging off of 
her truth and her experience worsened her depression. And in that issue, we talked about, you know, I talked to a psychologist, uh, Sharon Lowe, who is a first generation Taiwanese American, and she offered some tips on how to approach that first conversation if you feel like you're struggling with a mental illness. And I mean, there were some really good points that um, she said, you know, like one of the things is like, be mindful of their experience and just like, you know, think about like what they have been, what kind of access they've had, what kind of uh, mental health education access that they've had um, growing up and just keep that in mind. And, you know, also remember that like any, I really love like what she said, any misguided reactions, um, such as yelling or, you know, shutting down or crying, they come from a place of fear. Um, and it's important to like keep returning to the idea that everything is like kind of rooted in love, even if those reactions do feel um, misguided. And another really big piece of advice is like, if you feel like things are getting heightened, it's okay to kind of, you know, say, okay, let's come back to this another time. I feel like, you know, it's just getting a little bit out of hand and that's okay. Like, it's not, you don't have to like, unless you feel like it's an emergency and you need professional help right then and there, like this is a conversation that will take a lot of time and it will take you coming back and, you know, returning to the pain, painful conversations. It's, it doesn't have to be like you have one conversation and everything is over. You know, that's not how growth works. It's a slow process. And so I definitely feel like, like that issue in particular, like I got a lot of feedback from people who use a lot of the tips that Sharon provided and that the Stanford Mental Health Innovation Network provided. I reached out to them for some tips too. And I really liked a lot of the advice that they gave. And so if anyone out there is like, you know, wondering like how exactly to like have that talk with their parents, or if you are a mom or a dad, like a parent or a guardian who wants to talk to their children about mental health, but you don't know how to start, there's some tips in there about that too. And I mean, again, like the, the experience that we centered was about an immigrant, but it it touches like everybody. I love that you have uh, the perfect resource for this topic, of course. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear just a little bit more, maybe shifting gears into how you ended up launching Foreign Bodies in the first place. Uh, it sounded like you had this, this fellowship with um, the Carter Center's mental health program. Um, mm -hmm. How did that relate to Foreign Bodies and how did that help bring you here? So, um, yeah, I was really lucky to um, become one of their fellows in, I think it was 2018. And this is when I was at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my local paper. Um, and, you know, initially the plan was to produce, um, like publish a few stories for the paper um, on immigrant mental health. And I'm, I think it's like clear why I chose that topic. Like it was definitely personal, but also with the state of the world at that time, um, you were dealing with like the political, um, you know, influences of like uh, anti-immigrant discourse and everything. And so that was a topic that definitely like spoke to me and that I felt like I hadn't really read much about. Um, and so the plan was, like I said, like to just publish a few stories, but as soon as I started interviewing, I think I interviewed like maybe like 60 to 70 different people, like, in or around like the metro Atlanta area and we're home to Clarkston which is like a significant like refugee um population uh, base here in Georgia and the more I was talking the more I realized that 
what I wanted to do or what I felt like I needed to do was create a space where they felt comfortable talking, where I knew, like, I knew that if I published like a big story or two in the paper, that would be great. But I don't know that it would reach the immigrant audiences that I'm trying to reach here. And so what happened was, you know, I had like, God, I have like a, like way too many folders of interviews and research and nowhere to really address them all. And so I knew I needed something that was kind of recurring. Um, and I, I had been into like newsletters at the time. Like it was just like something that felt really intimate, something that, you know, you open up like your email and it's like someone's talking to you and you only, and it just felt really, it felt like the right thing, like right kind of format. I knew a lot of older immigrants, especially use, like check their emails pretty often, if not WhatsApp or, you know, like whatever different apps there are. Um, they seem to be more drawn to um, things like that over um, like reading a newspaper article. And I, I knew that a newsletter just made a lot, a lot more sense. And so, I mean, when I first started off, it was kind of my way of just seeing how it would work and, you know, experimenting. I mean, that's, that's like anyone like who's in media will tell you like once they start something, it's just kind of like a game to see like, you know, who's reacting to what. And I noticed that like the more I continued writing for foreign bodies and, um, there was just like way more to address. And as soon as people, you know, word of mouth kind of spread, I was noticing a lot of like young immigrants, a lot of parents were kind of drawn to the subject too, because there's where else do you really turn for that? So yeah, I don't know if I really answered that very well. Yeah, that was, that was great. Um, <laughs> why, that was great. Uh, <laughs> why do you think it's important to have uh, sort of this like, kickoff kind of support um like the fellowship that you had to like offer ex extra support to journalists that are focused on mental health like what are the challenges that uh, mental health journalists face in their careers Ooh, well one it's journalists across the board are incredibly or newsrooms across the board are incredibly short staffed there's like no way that it's very rare to have like some like a journalist be able to focus on mental health journalism alone. And so I, I definitely feel like it's kind of, you know, a project that you might work on like once a year or like you might do like a few stories on like um, every other month or something, but it's not like, it's just, newsrooms are just too short staffed. Like there's just no way I, I can imagine, even when I had like the fellowship and I was at the AJC, I did most of my work for the fellowship outside of the newsroom. And so it was like, you know, basically working two jobs. It just wasn't really feasible to like do any of that inside the newsroom, at least in my experience. Um, I know there are people who do have that privilege and they're really lucky, <laughs> but I did not have that. And I knew that like the only way that I could really justify doing all this research, doing all those interviews, writing and all of that was to have that fellowship. I mean, I wouldn't really be able to sustain um, really anything or like, you know, without that kind of honestly like financial support and like the mentorship that came with the program. And yeah, I mean, it's tough to be a journalist when you're, um, you know, specifically passionate about one thing because you're 
pulled in tons of different directions when you're working in a newsroom nowadays. Right. Like, I guess it's hard to imagine having, I'm sure it's extraordinarily rare to have like a regular beat that is just focused on mental health. It seems a little bit more yeah. investigative or research oriented. Definitely. In yeah. yeah. And I mean, the truth of the matter is like, yeah, it's like the investigative work that, you know, you, you see concrete results for, but how it's hard to justify from like an editorial management standpoint. Um, it, it comes down to like how many people are clicking on it. <laughs> how many people are reading it and so it's when you have like an audience that's let's say it's not primarily about immigrants or not primarily immigrants they're not primarily mental health professionals or people interested in mental health they're not going to be automatically drawn to like stories about mental health and that doesn't mean that stories like that shouldn't exist in the paper of course they should because like those conversations need to be um you know ignited but it's hard to find like a home for it. You did have this piece with Teen Vogue that came out uh, last year. For a lot of writers, I'm sure like they would just dream about getting that kind of an, an op-ed placement. How does one go about getting an op-ed in something like Teen Vogue? And, and what was the response like? Did that help kick off some of your work with Foreign Bodies? Um, so <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Like, so the day that that came out, I think was the day after I quit my job. <laughs> it was like oh, the wow. last day of my job, the last day of my job or something. And I remember um, I almost felt like it was too early. Like I felt like, oh God, like now that I quit and like I have this published, are people going to expect me to do more? <laughs> and I was just like, no, no, this is just like months, <laughs> months in the making. Um, honestly, it's, I felt like I had a story that needed to be told. And I, I think almost everyone has a story that they feel needs to be told. And it really was just about being okay with publicizing that and letting your vulnerabilities like be on screen um, or on paper or wherever you're, you know, you want to pitch your story. And by that point, I will say that I was ready for that. Um, by that point, I had made that decision to leave my job because I didn't feel like it was helping my health. By that point, I had made the decision to go to therapy, um, start medications and everything. And I, I did feel comfortable enough. Um, and so I think, and I, I'm not saying that you have to be at a certain comfort level to like expose yourself like that, but I think it's important, you know, that once you do publish something that's so personal that you're ready for maybe like a little bit of backlash. <laughs> um, and, you know, I kept reminding myself like, okay, like, you know, not everyone's going to respond well to like a story like this. Um, and that's not really what happened. Like after that, I, I definitely feel like it helped foreign bodies because it helped people who aren't in my, you know, circle or my network um see that like maybe okay like I I actually have experienced some of the stuff that like maybe they've experienced and maybe hopefully felt like they could trust me a little bit more um I think building trust was like a huge thing I mean I didn't want to preach to anybody <laughs> like I'm not a professional um mental health you know um clinician or anything but I definitely felt like I wanted to kind of showcase the fact that 
you know, I'm putting my vulnerabilities out there and I find power in that. And I think like that should be something, or I hope that that's something that, you know, when you read my story that you feel something in you that kind of makes you want to, you know, grab a pen and start writing. And I mean, any for advice about like how to get published, I mean, honestly, just email the editors. Like it's really, there's not um, too much to it. Like I think there's going to be a lot of rejection, of course, like when you email editors and you have something that you want to write about, but that's part of the like learning process. But I I mean, if you have a story to tell, like just make sure it's told like no matter where. Um, I don't think, at least like I don't get too caught up in like, exactly where everything is published. I think Teen Vogue is a really great outlet for, you know, young people. And I know um, Foreign Bodies reaches a lot of really young people, like people in middle and high school and in college. And it felt like the right audience for the story that I needed to tell because it, you know, my story had so much to do with like the way that I grew up and um, like my relationship with my parents. And so it felt like the right outlet, but I I don't recommend anyone chase any specific names um, in media or anything. I think if you have a story, like find a way to have it told, like if it's writing on a blog or writing for foreign bodies or writing to Teen Vogue, it doesn't really matter. I think the most important thing is to like, when you read a story like that, that it sparks something within you to want to tell your own. Does foreign bodies benefit from word of mouth kind of spreading in the way that other types of writing might because it is such a private activity like is this something that people are excited to share and talk about in public or does it feel more like oh I'm reading this privately because I'm having some sort of issue Hmm, that's a good question um I will say like the people who are probably really vocal about reading or like um you know being a subscriber to foreign bodies are the people who do feel a little bit more maybe they've like already felt like they've been like they've experienced the worst of it and a lot of them are storytellers too and I definitely feel like a lot of the young like immigrant parents um who read the letter and maybe they're like a little more shy on like experience, like expressing how they feel about it. I, I, I don't know, but that's a really good question. I wonder that a lot. Like, I feel like, you know, there are people who are really willing to talk, but I know in my reporting experience, when I was first reporting with the Carter Center, like the hardest thing to do was to like get immigrants to talk. And, and so I always wonder like what percentage of them are really still afraid of talking even though you know you're seeing so many people um expose their own stories but maybe i'm just being optimistic but maybe like each issue kind of inches them towards being more open to it yeah i was was thinking um just like having again i mean we keep coming back to this theme of storytelling but having a post from someone else or a story from someone else can also help depersonalize it a little bit um, if you do and make it easier for you to talk about yourself in a more public setting or talking to someone else. Um, I was just thinking about this the other day because I shared on my own Twitter um, this blog post from Laura Deming 
talking about just you know her experiences with feeling sad and I really like the piece and especially because it just came from someone that I knew who like does not normally seem to talk about any of these topics in public and uh, I imagine just faces a lot of pressure in being a young successful person um, and so, and it made me want to like share it out and then I sort of just inserted a little bit of myself in that when I shared it but that was like a new experience for me but I don't think I would normally have like shared it anything about myself uh, personally but I, it was a lot easier to be like oh this person wrote about it and I totally resonate with this yeah I mean, it's like the act of kind of retweeting something, right? Like, if it's like not necessarily something that you would feel comfortable expressing, but in a way, you kind of, unless you like have it in your Twitter byline, um, and you know, or Twitter bio, and you say like your retweets don't include endorsements or anything, but usually, like, the act of like retweeting or quote tweeting or uh, resharing a story um, on any medium kind of implies that you have some kind of connection to it, which is already like brave and in and of itself, you know? Absolutely. It's a good note to end on. Um, thank you for joining and chatting with me. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Where should people find you if they want to check out your work? Um, (laughs) foreignbodies.net. Um, I have a on foreignbodies.net. You'll find a pretty easy sign up um, embed for the newsletter on Substack. And on Twitter, I'm at Fiza Pirani, F I Z A P I R A N I. And I'm always here to listen to your complaints about my newsletter and always looking to improve. So send away. <laughs> Love it. Thanks, Fiza. Thank you so much. <laughs>